HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're examining the true cost of convenience when it comes to when, where, and how we eat. Dark stores enable workers to eat without any kind of thought to how they're getting their food or how it might have come to be. DoorDash, Uber, and Lyft in the past have pledged to spend $90 million to try to exempt themselves from the law. I could be wrong, uh, but I, I think there's going to be significant regulatory pushback on driverless trucks. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Thanks for joining us for a brand new episode on this cloudy Tuesday coming at you live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. You may have heard of Nova Scotia, Canada, but you might have a hard time placing it on the map. Located east of Maine, it is one of Canada's three maritime provinces and one of the four provinces that form Atlantic Canada. The population is around 920,000 people, which means it has just slightly less people than South Dakota. But Halifax, the capital, is bustling as a major economic center and is a popular tourist destination for those interested in all aspects of Nova Scotia sea life, including maritime history, fantastic fishing, and exploring shipwrecks. Nova Scotia is made up primarily of those from Scottish and English backgrounds, but over 5% of the existing population identifies as First Nation or Canadian Indian. While the cuisine of Canada is not something that is easily definable, Nova Scotia is a fishing culture with cuisine inspired and dominated by the sea that surrounds it. My guest today, Chef Seedon Chaus, grew up in a small fishing village in rural Nova Scotia. As a young boy, he loved seafood and would go out harvesting wild mussels and go fishing for mackerel right in front of his house. Chef has worked in multiple states, opening up concepts, and has spent a lot of his career working in large restaurant and hotel groups, including the Myriad Restaurant Group, the W Hotel, Carlton Hotel, and at Glenmere Mansion in New York. In 2005, Chef Schaus rejoined the W Hoboken to open and lead the kitchen of Halifax, a concept inspired by his experiences growing up in Nova Scotia and his passion for northeastern farm and coastal cuisine. In 2017, Halifax earned a three-star review from New Jersey Monthly Magazine. Chef, welcome to the show. Thank you. 
So I want you to tell me about growing up in a rural fishing village. I'm picturing lots of salty air whipping against a cottage, uh, lots of lush grass, maybe fish drying or curing. How'd I do? A- any exactly of that? Any of that correct? <laughs> Way off base. Uh, what was it like growing up in in rural Nova Scotia? So uh, as a, as a child, it was uh, it was it was what I knew. So it was kind of knew nothing else. Um, but uh, it w- wasn't quite like that. It wasn't necessarily fish drying on the clothesline. But we, I lived, grew up right on the ocean. Um, in storms, we'd have salt water coming up into our front yard and seaweed on our roof and big storms. Um, but fishing wasn't a big part of my life growing up. It was more of something I did just kind of for fun. Um, but uh, I lived very rural, lived back a mile-long dirt road, windmill for power, uh, no running water in the house. Uh, we ground our own wheat for pancakes in the morning, hand ground. Um, so kind of uh, for me, it was an interesting childhood. Uh, and for me now, it kind of more uh, reflects my current uh, career with being a chef and kind of trying to get the products from the land um, as my childhood was. What did your parents do when you were when you were a young kid? Did they travel really far to like an urban center for work or did they did they work in your village? Uh, so they, they worked in, in around in around the town that I grew up in. I mean, it wasn't that rural. I mean, Nova Scotia's rural and small, but mm-hmm. it's only where I grew up was only an hour and hour and a half from from Halifax, the big the big city. So right. it wasn't too far. Uh, both my both my parents were, were construction workers, were contractors, uh, so they worked kind of around around the town. Um, but we also had had gardens on our property, so they grew grew our own produce. Uh, we raised goats. Uh, we raised uh, pigs at one point. Um, so we had kind of sustainable stuff. On our on our property as well. When they worked, um, they would come back and and harvest from there. It felt normal for you because that was your childhood. But was that how everyone around that area grew up, raising uh, vegetables and animals and and not having running water? Or was your family a little bit different in that capacity? I definitely think my family was a little bit different uh, with that. <laughs> it, it's not that rural. Nova Scotia is not that rural. It was just just my kind of family how they decided to so. Live. It was just kind of a, a decision that your parents wanted to really live off the land and kind of impart that to you. That's correct, yeah. And so as you're growing up, you're you know a young adult, a teenager. Are you thinking about transitioning this kind of lifestyle where you're growing things, you've got animals, and thinking that this could maybe be something that could be a career? Or did you go in a completely opposite direction? And was there another passion that you had that you that you went and studied? So yeah, I didn't didn't plan on this being a career whatsoever. Uh, growing up, it was kind of more more of a pain in the butt than anything, I think, uh, as a child. Um, I didn't kind of was embarrassed to have people come to the house because we didn't have running water and all my friends did. Um, so as a child, it, I didn't appreciate it as much as I do now. Um, so I, I wanted to be a pilot growing up. So kind of uh, that's kind of where my my kind of path led for the first few years of my late late childhood. And where did that take you? So I moved to Virginia um, when I was uh, 15 uh, to go to to go to uh, be a resident in Virginia to go to Virginia Tech, uh, where I wanted to go to university. So I moved there to be a resident, finished high school with the plan to go to university there to become a pilot. Um, and that's kind of uh, where my career was going for a little while uh, until I started cooking. Did you did you get far into that pilot dream? Did you actually pursue it? Like, did you ever 
go up? Did you take flying lessons or anything like that? I didn't take flying lessons, no. Uh, I was enrolled and actually after moving to Virginia, decided I didn't want to go to Virginia Tech and ended up enrolling in Jacksonville University in Jacksonville, Florida for an aeronautical engineering program um, and was enrolled, uh, got scholarships. Then kind of the summer before I was supposed to go, uh, decided to continue cooking. I'd been cooking in high school um, in Virginia. Um, just as kind of a, just as a job, uh, not really as a passion, but more just to make money and uh, realized that I loved it um, and would pursue that. What kind of flipped that switch for you? Because a lot of people get their first teenage job in, in food. A lot of folks wash dishes, work at McDonald's. Maybe you get a good line cook job at like the local Italian restaurant, but a lot of people give it up after that. What made you think that it would be something so interesting that it really diverted you from aeronautical engineering and and pursuing the the flying passion that you had earlier on in your life. Well, that's interesting. So I was actually back in Nova Scotia on a, on a, on a trip, um, just vis- visiting with my family. I was in the airport, in Halifax Airport, getting ready to fly back to Virginia. And my stepfather and I were talking. Um, and he, he basically said, so you love cooking? And I said, yeah, it's really it's fun. I enjoy it. He said, well, how do you know you're going to be loving, love being a pilot? You've never been a pilot. How do you know you're going to like that? And I said, you're right. I don't know. He's like, well, what are you, what are, have you thought about being a chef? And I th- immediately was going to respond like, no, 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 I don't want to be a chef. And then I thought about it. I was like, I don't even have an answer for him. I don't know why I wouldn't want to be a chef. Um, so that really got me thinking right then was maybe I should kind of pursue this cooking. I was good at it. Uh, the chef that I worked for, for at that point, two and a half years, um, loved working with her, and uh, she said I was great. So I said, you know what, maybe I will pursue it. So that's kind of what turned my mind. Is I didn't really think about it until it was brought up to me by a family member, like, hey, you should, you should think about this. And uh, that's kind of where, where I went. So you're in Jacksonville at this point. You, you come back from Nova Scotia. Do no, you drop I out of school? No, I hadn't moved to Jacksonville yet. Oh, okay. Uh, was, was getting ready to move to Jacksonville. Uh, came back to Virginia, was going to move that summer, and uh, ended up just giving it up, not, 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 not going to Jacksonville at all. Continued to cook in Virginia at the same restaurant for another year. Um, took, so I took a year off after high school uh, before going to culinary school. And so where do you go to culinary school? Culinary Institute of Canada. Uh, so that's in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. Um, so it's another Atlantic province. So very back cl- close to home. Prince Edward Island is right north of Nova Scotia, exactly. right? Yes. Okay. So you ended up being close to home. Did you stay... Uh, on campus at the at the culinary school, did you commute to it? Like, how did that work? Uh, I commuted. So the first year, I actually lived about forty five minutes um, from from the, the college um, on a, on a farm on a on a cattle farm. Actually, uh, just rented a room from a couple guys that had a cattle farm um, and commuted. And then my second year, I, I lived closer to school. And you were coming into culinary school with actually a good amount of experience. You had done some real cooking before that. Was it a rude awakening at culinary school or were you kind of one of the more advanced folks when you got there? Uh, It definitely wasn't a rude awakening. I I was more advanced than than a lot. I mean, a lot of the students going into culinary school are fresh out of high school. They hadn't cooked other than at home a little bit, Um, but it was still a great learning experience. It was the kind of basics I knew of how to cut an onion and, and those type of items, but it was the the classic um, the classic items and, and the recipes and the kind of recipe development I, uh, areas that I was not familiar with. So yeah, it was a great mother great sauces Correct. breaking down a little bit of butchery, a little bit of fish butchery, That's things right. that maybe you hadn't had your hands in before. And so, was that a one year program? Was it? It was a two year okay. two year associate's degree. Yeah. And so, where did you end up after you graduated? You're 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 back, sort of 
very close to home. Was there either the allure or pressure from your parents to stay in Nova Scotia or to stay close by in Canada? Or did you just decide that you wanted to jump right back to the United States and, and move away again? So of course my mother who still lives in Nova Scotia, she, she really wanted me to move to Nova Scotia. But it, during in between the first and second year of culinary school, I do an internship and uh, I did my internship on Nantucket Island. So uh, it, for me, I had a great, incredible experience for my internship there. So I ended up, after graduating culinary school, going back to Nantucket for another year. And Nantucket is super seasonal work. It's crazy busy during the warm months, and then it shrinks down quite a bit, right, during wintertime. And it's just locals and people that maybe ordinarily rent their houses during the summer. Maybe they come back for a little bit. The place that you worked, was it in a hotel? Was it a seasonal kind of seaside fish shack type of place? What was it like? So it was uh, not in a hotel. Uh, it was the Chanticleer Inn. It was called an inn, but it was not, not an inn. Um, it was a classical classical French restaurant. Uh, had been around for over 100 years. Uh, the, the, the owner at the time uh, took it over in the 70s, late 70s, um, a chef called Jean-Charles John Barraway. Uh, and it, it, was a, it was an incredible, incredible restaurant, the number one restaurant on Nantucket Island. Um, and uh, so it was... Very much classical French, as you would have seen in the in the 60s and, and 50s in, in France. Um, but it was like heavy, heavy, heavy dishes, but super, super everything based in the classics. Um, so you got technique. yelled at and there was a lot of cream. Uh, there was a, exactly <laughs> a lot of yelling, uh, no talking during service at all. Zero. No music, of course, in the kitchen like sometimes you have now. Um, it was very, very regimented. But it, for me as a young as a young cook, it was the perfect start to my kind of real career. Uh, because I learned kind of the, the what you need to kind of the, the discipline you need in the in the kitchen. Were you a pretty disciplined guy going into culinary school and going into that first job? Would you have considered yourself at that point to been to have been an organized and responsible young man, or did you did you need that structure? I was definitely responsible and organized, um, but the the structure kind of. Go, having that restaurant, working at Chanticleer Inn um, kind of solidified that in me. Uh, so I was organized and responsible before, but that just kind of drove, drove it home um, with that. And, and how do they accomplish that? Like, did you feel like you got broken down and built back up? Was it just the military precision of a French kitchen? Like, how exactly? And does do you think that that translates today? Or was that just a throwback that, that you don't think would work as well today with, with young people in the kitchen? Good question. Good question. The cooks, cooks uh, this this day and age are a little different, I think, than when I was kind of growing up, and I think a lot of a lot of my chef friends kind of agree. Um, I, I would, at the time, it was not kind of break you down to build you up. It was the way it was. You you had to you had to respect the chefs. You had to respect what the chef wanted. There was no there was no option. There was no option to come in late. There was no option to call out sick. There was no option for any of that. Like it just it didn't happen. It never happened. So. It was a kind of, a th- I feel like, I don't want to sound like I'm too old right now, but it, it, it kind of, times are different now, in my opinion. I wish, I wish kind of uh, young, young cooks had the same uh, attitude that kind of we did kind of years ago. Sure, it's like pursuit of craft versus just a paycheck sometimes. Exactly. It can be sort of those mentalities which really are on opposite sides of the spectrum. Uh, it, and obviously you were really digging in to pursue this as your career, 
did the next stop for you, was that Louisville? Is that where you ended up no, after I ended that? No, I ended up going to Florida. Okay. So after Shauna Claire ended up closing, uh, the chef uh, had been there for 35 years, was getting older and wanted to retire to Florida. So he uh, sold the restaurant. Uh, I, worked, I worked there the last two years it was open. Uh, and then uh, I moved to South Florida, Naples, Naples area. And so were you still doing sort of high-end French cooking in, in Naples? No, actually, yeah. Well, when I was at the Shauna Claire, I said I would only cook French food after that because I was so into the French cuisine and yeah. ended, ended up going to a northern Italian restaurant uh, after that, uh, a resort, uh, Marco Beach Ocean Resort um, that was in uh, Marco, Island, Marco Island, Florida. And so it, it seems like you pursue a lot of places that are uh, sort of like bigger restaurants, bigger restaurant groups. Is that something that's just sort of happened over the course of your career? Do you like the style and the camaraderie of those bigger places? I mean, when I when I was looking at all the places you worked, it's really, it's a lot of hotels and big uh, scale restaurants. Like, what about that appeals to you? Is it just coincidental or is there something within those operations that you find appealing? Good question. Uh, so I've kind of, after my first couple uh, hotel places, um, positions, I, I've kind of told myself I didn't want to work, work in hotels anymore. There's so much kind of more you got to think about being in a hotel. You usually open three meal periods, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, seven days a week most likely, uh, whereas smaller restaurants sometimes are only open lunch and dinner or just dinner or five days a week or six days a week. So um, I, I said I would kind of wanted to move towards the kind of just uh, single standing restaurants, but for some reason kind of hotels keep getting in, put in front of me. Uh, and that's kind of, and I think part of that is, 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 being a chef who's worked in hotels, it's you, you know what a hotel it takes. You know what it takes to work in a hotel. Whereas a chef who's not worked in hotels might be a, a different challenge for them. They might not be used to it. So I think people looking for a hotel chef tend to look to chefs that have experience in hotels. Yeah, I, I would love for you to speak about that actually a little bit more in detail. There is a very specific skill set that a hotel chef has. And when people are hiring for their various restaurants and you know you go and see a job posting maybe for the Hyatt Resort in, in Florida and you think to yourself, well, I'm a chef. I ran a restaurant. We had four or five people on the line and we did 200 covers a night. A hotel is a completely different animal. And uh, with for those that have never worked in, in it and have never run kitchens, you've obviously run many kitchens. Can you speak to just some of the differences uh, in a day to day that, that what is it like to be on the line and be a chef in a hotel that someone who works in a more traditional standalone brick and mortar might not even know is, is a thing. Uh, so one of the, one of the items is, is the customer, your customer base, customers coming from the hotel, kind of a little more demanding. Uh, they're staying in the hotel. They're paying, paying a good amount of money to stay in the hotel. They're expecting you to kind of bend over backwards a little more than you might uh, for a regular guest. I mean, it's always about the guests, of course, but uh, in, when you're staying in a hotel, I kind of think the hotel guests feel a little more entitled, let's, let's say. Um, so you've got to be prepared for different different requests and more requests than you normally would. Uh, so that's one item. The other, is, which I've already kind of touched on, is being open minimum three meal periods in, in hotels. Um, and, and even at the W, we're 24 hours, two days a week. Uh, we're, we're, so we're, con we're never closed for 24 hours straight. We're not closed. We have overnight service in the hotel. So you've got to, you're not, you don't have a period of time to come in in the morning and prep up when there's no orders coming in. You've got, you've got orders coming in at all times. Um, at the same time, you've got to get ready for the other meal periods. So at the W, and we'll get to this, 
obviously in the second half, but you run a full overnight menu basically. Like people can order real substantial food items at, at four in the morning. Correct. Uh, Fridays and Saturdays, we have, we have a cook there all night long for room service. Uh, the other days of the week, uh, we have a limited menu. Um, it's, uh, but it's five days a week limited menu and then two days a week full, full on menu. I want to talk obviously more about hotels and, and staffing and just kind of like the the behemoth that a hotel kitchen can be. But before we get into into that, I want to ask about of all the kind of stops along the way, you're, you're back with the, the W group. But um, the one that kind of jumped out at me was uh, was the Glenmare Mansion in, in New York. Uh, yes. I looked at the website and it's just, it's a stunning property. Not that Nantucket isn't amazing and, you know, not that the W and the Carlton aren't great properties, but it's just, it's an extreme place to visit, to work, right? It's uh, 150 acres and it's it's uh, kind of like a stunning old world chateau. Can you speak about how you got involved with that project and what it was like? Certainly, certainly. Yeah, Glenmere Mansion, it's in Chester, New York, um, so it's about 60 miles north of, of the city. Uh, absolutely incredible property. It, it looks, if you just took a picture of it, you'd think you were somewhere on the Tuscan, Tuscan countryside. Um, it, it is absolutely beautiful, and they actually just built uh, a new barn uh, connected to it for events uh, just recently. Um, how I got connected with them, so I was actually originally at the W Hotel uh, nine years ago. Um, as, as the chef of the, it was a different restaurant then, uh, decided to leave after about a year. Um, and a friend, a chef friend of mine kind of was consulting at Glamour Mansion. Um, wasn't a permanent position, was just kind of helping them out, trying to find them, find them staff, get them set up and recommended I, I kind of check it out. So I drove up there immediately looked at it. I was like, wow, this place is gorgeous. And 60 miles, I said, oh, I'm, I'm used to commuting a little bit. Uh, 60 miles shouldn't, shouldn't be a problem. Um, so I, did a tasting and, and, and got the job. And it was, uh, it's a Relay Chateau property. Um, so it was my first Relay Chateau property I worked at. Um, and it was just, it was exceptional. For a chef, uh, it was kind of a perfect, perfect world of, of two restaurants. We had the supper room, which was a very fine dining, tasting menu only. Um, and then we had the uh, Frog's End Tavern, which was a more casual, uh, it wasn't like a tavern that you would think of here, here in the city, but it was a, kind of a high-end casual kind of bar. Um, but it was inside a 17-room exclusive inn. Uh, so you could do more, as a chef, you could do more casual food. I uh, had some pot pies on the menu, different braised dishes, more casual. And then you had the supper room menu for, for you could kind of experiment and have fun. And... And there was the clientele mostly either people staying at the hotel and then buyouts for weddings and things like that? Or did it draw from neighboring? Because it's a pretty fancy restaurant. Is it the type of place that people make a reservation on a Tuesday and, and they just go there for dinner? Or is it really just like a special occasion type place? Some of both. Uh, it was pretty much if you were staying there, you were pretty much eating there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were only 17 rooms. So okay. you really you do, couldn't just uh, rely on in-house, in-house guests. There were people in the community that would come in for lunch, for coming for dinner. Uh, we did wine dinners every Thursday night, um, a different, different wine region every Thursday. So a lot of the locals would come for that. Um, it was kind of priced, priced kind of more affordable. And uh, it was fun because it changed up. So a lot of locals would come in. Did you stay on the grounds during that job or did you live off-site? No, I lived the same place I live now in the city, Midtown. Wow. Uh, so I commuted... Reverse commute, drove, drove, uh, drove there every day. 
How was that on your mental psyche? <laughs> that's that's the reason why I'm not there right now. It was, uh, yeah, it was incredible. It was days days that were no traffic, it was only an hour and 15 to an hour and 30. Uh, but when I hit traffic, sometimes coming back into the city, it'd be two and a half to three hours. And just adding that to a chef's uh, normal normal long, long day is, yeah, is too the, much. Yeah, at the end of your shift, you kind of just want to hop in a cab or hop on a train and be home, That's right? right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you still live in Midtown and, and commute to Hoboken? I do. Okay. I do. Yes. So you're still in the same spot. Um, so after you are at that property, at that point, you've been an executive chef for quite some time. And do you feel at that point in your career that you have your own specific individual style or were you still kind of finding your own voice in the French Italian fine dining kind of landscapes that you had been working? I feel like I was kind of finding my own voice my whole career up until, up until Halifax. Uh, I was working in different restaurants that already, already had an existing concept that wasn't necessarily my concept. So whether it be a Northern Italian or classical French or Glenmore Mansion was kind of French European influenced, um, uh, and another French restaurant I worked at. So it was more kind of a, they already had their own voice, kind of own, own concept. And I was doing my versions of those type of dishes, but I don't really feel it was necessarily my food. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about finding that voice and opening up your own concept. Stick with us here on the line on Heritage Radio. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today, my guest is Chef Seedon Chaus. He grew up in Nova Scotia, and after going to culinary school, he moved all around the United States working for hotel groups and some fine dining restaurants in Nantucket and Florida and, of course, on the East Coast. And his current position is the executive chef and partner in... Halifax, which is located in the W Hoboken. And Halifax is a real personal project for you. It we were talking just before the break about finding your own voice, working for other people, and uh is Halifax a true representation of what you've always wanted to do, culinary speaking? I think it is. It is. Halifax kind of is 
the name is the capital of Nova Scotia. I'm not from Halifax, the the, the, the capital, but I'm from uh, just south of that. But it, it represents Halifax represents a a fishing province, um, coastal coastal province, the kind of where where I'm from. So that's kind of what Halifax is. We're 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 sustainable northeastern farm and coastal cuisine. And so the specifics of the menu. I want to hear about maybe one, two dishes that you feel are really great representations of the restaurant because they speak to uh, either Canadian cuisine, your personal history, or uh, you know just fishing culture around Nova Scotia. And, um, and those two dishes, sort of what are the components of them? If you can walk us through one or two of them. Sure, sure. Um, so our, our biggest selling dish uh, and one of my favorites is a saffron rigatoni uh, with lobster and lobster coil butter and some trumpet mushrooms. Uh, this dish has been on the menu since we opened. It's one of the few dishes that have stayed on the menu. Uh, and, and, and it's kind of a representation, in my opinion, of my kind of career uh, through multiple restaurants um, and kind of my, my career in, in Italian restaurants learning, learning fresh pastas. Or in, in Florida, we made, uh, I can't even remember how many fresh pastas on the menu. Uh, and pasta's kind of been a, been a part of me since, since I worked there. So we make our own fresh saffron rigatoni pasta. So we put saffron in the dough and then extrude, extrude the pasta uh, into a rigatoni shape. Uh, and then it's, it's with uh, lobster. So we get local lobsters from uh, Point Pleasant, New Jersey, um, and uh, just light, lightly steam them. Uh, and that dish is with uh, trumpet mushrooms. Uh, mushrooms have always been a part of my my cuisine as well. I love foraging mushrooms myself. These ones are, are a uh, farm raised mushroom, um, but uh, so trumpet mushrooms, lobster, uh, lobster coral butter. So that's the uh, the roe uh, or the eggs from the lobster. We whip into butter uh, with a, with a little lobster stock, um, and that and that's basically the dish. I mean, it's it's lobster coral. Um, so you got a rich kind of lobster. Richness uh, from the from the from the coral and the butter, uh, fresh fresh post lobster, uh, and then the rigatoni pasta. Is there such a thing as Canadian cuisine? Is there a style, or is it uh, influenced by the ethnic groups that live in the various areas of Canada? I think it's the same as if you said, "Is there an American cuisine?" I mm-hmm. mean, there there are there's a few items you might list to that, but those dishes necessarily maybe are not just American. Uh, Canadian cuisine, I feel, is as fresh and local, uh, and it, it's it's kind of hard to put a, a name on Canadian cuisine because Canada is such a large country. Sure, um, it's more of kind of a, I think you can you can more represent, like you said, the the cultural connections to you got French Canadian cuisine, which is a specific kind of type of cuisine, um, and you have more Atlantic Atlantic provinces cuisine, which is more kind of seafoods, uh, smoked fish, um, and you've got more kind of the the out west, the, the western Canada cuisine, which is heavier on bison and beef, um, heavier on kind of the meats and less less on the fish. Um, and then you get back to the kind of uh, the west coast cuisine, which is which is kind of the, the, the crab and the, and the wild salmon. Um, so you got kind of different regions. I don't think there's one necessarily Canadian cuisine. Did you bring the Halifax concept with you to the W or did you get hired and then there was some sort of conceptualization over, Hey, what do you want your restaurant to be? And, and was, did it come out of kind of a brainstorming session? I'm wondering if you were like, this is my concept and I want to do it. Are you guys into that concept or, or if it was the other way around? So it's kind of a mix. Uh, that that's a great for me. This was the perfect, in my opinion, the perfect setup for a chef who wants to have his own voice. Uh, I had worked I'd worked there, like I said before, nine years ago. I worked for a management company. Didn't work directly for the owners. 
Um, there's, there's basically to step back, there's owners that own the whole property and they have the W hotels running the hotel. And then they had a management company running the restaurant. So I worked for that management company before. So I didn't really know the owners too well. Uh, about four years ago, I heard that they were looking for a chef and that the management company wasn't there anymore. Um, so I reached out to the owners directly, um, through, through, actually through some friends, mutual friends, uh, and set up a meeting with them. And, and basically we were exactly in the same, same lines. I wasn't necessarily wanting to go back to the same restaurant. Um, they weren't wanting to keep the same restaurant. So they brought me in and basically within the first few minutes said, so what kind of restaurant do you want to put in Halifax? I was like, what do you mean? They're like, oh, we're looking for a new restaurant. I'm like, really? That's perfect. That's what I want to do. Um, sorry, it was a different restaurant, Zylo. So what kind of restaurant do you want to put in the Zylo space? And uh, so immediately and during that meeting, within probably an hour and a half meeting, I expressed to them kind of a, a desire to to do something that represented me, uh, represented my childhood, represented kind of sustainable uh, seafood-focused food. Uh, I hadn't really kind of jotted down the Halifax concept really before. Um, it was just kind of something that I'd been longing kind of, kind of to do, something that represented kind of was more meaningful to me and not, not necessarily with a different label on the restaurant uh, coming from somebody else. So it was created right then with the owners. It must have been exciting for you and also your family to have something that felt a lot more personal than than other uh, jobs that you've had before, even when you were fully in charge. Did you make any aesthetic changes to the space to reflect the new menu? Or from a budgetary constraint, could you not go that that far? I mean... You know, beyond you know you inserting yourself and changing the menu, were there other things that you did to make it your own? We did. We we changed the whole restaurant. Um, so the restaurant is right on the waterfront in Hoboken, uh, with a view of the city. So we couldn't really didn't want, really want to change the view. Of course, uh, it's a beautiful view. But in the interior of the restaurant, we completely changed. We lightened up everything. Uh, all new floors. Uh, we re- reclaimed wood um, tables from barn from old barns oak, oak tables. Uh, the bar, we got a company out of uh, from, from here in Brooklyn um, called Recycled Brooklyn to build the bar out of a uh, fallen uh, oak tree from one of the local parks. Um, we, we, we put a, a whole wall in the restaurant um, made from bark. It's uh, just basically cut bark off of a, of a tree. The whole wall is kind of bark. Lots of greenery. Um, we did these planters all through the back bar throughout the restaurant, brought in some like a lot of nice greenery. And then uh, we have a, which can be the focal point of the restaurant. We have a whole wall that's that's called our kind of living wall. It's not actually living. It's it's moss that's kind of been uh, embalmed. Let's let's say so. It's real moss and still green, um, but it's uh, but it's not alive anymore. So we kind of brought a lot of kind of green and light colors into the restaurant, where it was a little darker before. There's a lot more woods, dark woods, and kind of dark metals. We brightened it up a lot to reflect kind of the Nova Scotia kind of feel. Was the opening of Halifax uh, the first time that you'd ever flipped a hotel restaurant before and hadn't eat, hadn't come in and run a concept, or had you been part of a opening before? I've been part of openings before, but not uh, turning an turning an old restaurant into a new restaurant from start to finish. Uh, when I came, when I, we opened Halifax. When I started with them, it was a different restaurant called Zylo. Uh, so for the first six months while we were doing all the planning and the design phase of Halifax, we were still running Zylo. And then we closed for a month. Um, and during that literally only 30 days, we closed um, to do the whole renovation. It was a whirlwind uh, renovation. Um, 
during that during that kind of time, I got to start from from start to finish. Whereas another restaurant where I worked in in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, Prufon, Maine, was a part of the opening team, but it was already built when I came on, so I wasn't part of the kind of whole build out uh, of that. What's the most challenging aspects of being a hotel chef? Oh, challenge. It's staff. I mean, I think, uh, I don't know if that's different from being a hotel chef or just being a chef in general, uh, but staffing, uh, staffing is tough. Um, kind of have good, good staff. I think that's kind of what everyone says probably as well. But I mean, by back to, back to what I said about the hours, I mean, the hours you're, you're constantly open. So you've got more than just kind of worrying about just dinner shift or lunch shift. You've got all the shifts. So I think to me, that's one of the most challenging, uh, things is you're open every day of the week and at all times. What's your uh, hierarchy? What's your structure like? Do you have uh, someone who functions as, as a CDC who runs specific services? Do you have uh, set sous chefs that are tied to a service? I'm just, I'm trying to, in my head, count up how much staff you would need. How, how many do you have in the kitchen altogether? It seems like you would need at least 25 or 30 people to run that many services. So we have 45 uh, total, total okay. people in the kitchen. Um, part of that is because we do all the banquets for the hotel as well. Sure. So I have myself, of course, executive chef. I have a chef de cuisine, a banquet chef, uh, and then two sous chefs as well. So as far as the chef team is quite large, larger than you would have in a normal freestanding restaurant. Yeah. Um, and then and then kind of the the, the cooks, cooks and, and commis and, and stewards down from there. And so it would be my opinion that working at a hotel has some some perks and those perks might be all right when things break there's you know they have their guy their team that comes in and fixes things there's you know there's a night porter team that comes in and can clean the place top to bottom um what are some of the tools that you have at your disposal that someone who's never worked in a hotel might um might be able to to implement maybe not on such a grand scale but what are some things that you've learned from being in a hotel that are like just necessities because it's such a large team in such a large space that someone could uh use as a takeaway uh for their restaurant sure uh, and i think this is kind of not just being in a hotel but for every restaurant is is it, when things start kind of uh, failing and kind of don't put band-aids on them fix them uh, band-aids just kind of build up and then you get a bigger problem uh, is fix the little issues uh, something that I've learned over the time and I know some restaurants might have the budget for it is giving your staff the tools they need to be efficient um, well it will eventually save you money you might spend a little extra money getting brand new Cambros um, to to store your product in but your stuff's going to be more visible in the, in the walk-in. Your prep's going to be more visible. Um, you're going to be able to label and date easier. Um, so that, therefore, you'll probably have less waste. So you're going to save money in the end. You're going to give your staff kind of a clean, organized environment. Um, and in the end, I think it'll, it'll, you'll come out on positive, where I think some other restaurants don't necessarily have that mindset. They want to save, 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 don't want to spend that extra 20 bucks for a Cambro. Whereas, uh, in my opinion, it's, you save money by, by spending money. How would you consider your style of leadership? How do you teach young people in the kitchen? Staffing is always an issue that everyone on this show talks about. And building a cohesive staff, getting them to do the work, and then getting them to stay is really challenging. So it is challenging. How do you uh, take all of the experience that you've had over the years and – uh, pass that along to young staff that might not have necessarily the the drive that you had, uh, you know, 
10, 15 years ago when you started cooking? Well, I still, I still think that's something that I'm kind of growing myself. Um, when, when I was a younger chef for my first few restaurants that I, that I was running, I was kind of a yeller and screamer because that's the way I kind of was brought up in the classical French restaurants and Italian restaurants. It was kind of, that's the way you get things done. Uh, and I realized uh, kind of thankfully a few years ago that you don't necessarily need to be like that, um, that, that basically staff will, will respond uh, better for you, uh, just being more understanding. I still have to be stern, but be more understanding. I find my, my management style is I'm as flexible as possible as long as you communicate with me. Uh, pretty much all my staff, if you give me a week or two notice, they're going to get off. You're going to get off when you ask to be off. I'd rather you request off uh, a Saturday night than call out Saturday night because you were too scared to request off. If I was yelling and screaming at you every day, you might not have, have the kind of confidence to ask me for a day off. Well, I'd rather give you that day off and plan for you not to be there rather than you just not show up. So that's kind of something that I feel at least for it works for me. I mean, it might not work for everyone, but I think that works for me. Uh, most of my staff have been with me for years. Um, some, some of my staff, my, one of my sous chefs was, was a dishwasher nine years ago, uh, when I was at the W and he's still, still with me as a sous chef now. That's awesome that you've been able to, uh, help him grow and keep roles for, for him within your organization so that they stay. That's part of the, part of the challenge is giving people the opportunities to step up. Sometimes it's just not available at the right time and then they leave. Um, I'm wondering about, since you're now in a place that really represents you and you're able to be fully in control and put whatever you want on the menu do you think about the future five, ten years from now? Are there other projects that are brewing in the back of your mind? Do you feel really content and satisfied with where you are right now? Or are you getting a little bit of a, an itch in any way? <laughs> so I'm, I'm content, but I'm def, definitely not satisfied. I don't think a chef can ever be really satisfied. Um, I, keep, I keep quite busy. I just got back uh, last night from uh, another property I have in Northern California. Uh, called Timber Timber Cove, um, uh, the restaurant's Coast Kitchen, and that's uh, in Jenner, Jenner, California. So I was brought into this project about a year and a half ago. It's the same same main owner as uh, the W in Halifax Restaurant, um, and he has this property, um, and he asked me to be a partner with him a year and a half ago. So I'm a partner in the restaurant there. So I, that keeps me quite busy. I'm there every month um, for a minimum a week, um, and uh, so that that's one project that I'm working on. I've been working on for a while. Uh, definitely have other projects that I'm that I'm looking at doing. Kind of want to do a more of a high end kind of tasting menu, small small restaurant kind of speakeasy style. Um, still working on that though, so too, not not too much information on that. That's intense. You have uh, bi coastal restaurants that are occupying a lot of your time. The California project. How do you manage that um, from afar? Staffing is the same. This is the answer to that. Having good good staff you can trust and work with um, is key. Uh, and the, that property is unique um, in in that it's it's quite remote. It's on the Sonoma coast, um, and you think of a California as big big cities. Well, this is a two and a half hour drive from San Francisco. Um, quite remote. The closest town is thirty minutes away, and that's a small town. Closest big town is an hour and a half away. So, to to there, you have to have staff you can count on, um, and, and how I've kind of managed that is, is kind of brought brought a team from from here, from the East Coast. So my chef there, uh, he's been there right now a year. He was a sous chef for me at Halifax. 
um, and then he basically moved out there with his whole family uh, to take over. Uh, one of the sous chefs and the pastry chef is from here as well. She was she was a pastry chef at Halifax and and had the opportunity to move out there. A couple of the dining room managers um, came from Halifax as well. So I've got a, a strong strong team that kind of I've worked with for for years now um, that are kind of helping helping there. So that's how it makes it possible for me. If it wasn't for the staff, it wouldn't be possible. I couldn't run both restaurants 3,000 miles away. Yeah, it sounds kind of uh, impossible anyways. Obviously, you're managing doing it, but I imagine that on days that you get an email and you're in New York or vice versa, there's a certain amount of added stress to the fact that you can't just hop in a lift and shoot over to your other property and check in what's going on. There's a, a huge amount of trust that goes on beyond uh, a sort of a normal two-property executive chef type of experience. You you really have to uh, let those people do their job <laughs> because you can't really babysit them every single day when you're across the country. Uh, geographically, closer but but still far in people's minds is the fact that even you live in New York but your restaurant's in Hoboken. I'm curious about how um, if this is true or not, is there a perception of uh, New Yorkers traveling to Hoboken to eat dinner? Is that a problem that you face with the restaurant, that you're trying to get people that live in the city to come visit the restaurant, or is that not really an issue whatsoever? I wouldn't say it's an issue. Uh, do we get a lot of people coming to Halifax from New York City just to come to the restaurant? No, not a whole lot. Uh, I mean, it's uh, once people come, then they do. We've had I have a couple that I met at an event in in the city a few months ago that, that live in Long Island, and they came in uh, for two days just to come to the restaurant. They stayed at the hotel literally just to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the restaurant. That's which awesome. was amazing. Um, but Hoboken is a lot. A lot of Hoboken, the people that live there are people that work in the city. Right. Um, they just they choose to live there, kind of a little little less stress, a little little more room. Um, so a, a lot of our clientele are locals. We're not necessarily we're in a hotel, but we're not a hotel restaurant. Uh, so we we get maybe twenty percent of our businesses from the hotel, which is which is great. But it's it's mostly locals, uh, and the locals are kind of Hoboken, kind of uh, Jersey City, um, Bergen County kind of area. Uh, so, but we do get people from 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 the city. It's it's amazing to me how many people. Um, have never been to Hoboken, uh, myself included. When I first went there nine years ago, I was like, wow, this, this is like a community. This is not like you're in the city. And then you're literally looking at Manhattan skyline right there. Uh, it's a, it's a beautiful kind of place. Um, so yes, we would like more New York city people to come, but I understand. I mean, there's so many restaurants in, in Manhattan. It's in Brooklyn. It's, it's kind of a longer little commute, but it's worth it. The view's unbeatable though. You're looking, you're looking at Manhattan, which obviously no matter what, where you are, Fidei, South Seaport, it doesn't really matter. You're looking out from that beautiful view. Uh, let's um, let everyone know what the address is of Halifax, uh, the website, how can they find it? And obviously you're open all the time, so they can come <laughs> whenever they want. But uh, where is it located in Hoboken? So we're on uh, 3rd and River Street. Uh, the address is 225 River Street. Uh, we're right on the waterfront um, kind of uh, in, in the W Hotel, and if you're looking from the city, you just look for the big W on top of the top of the hotel. So you can take the path train, um, the the Hoboken path train, uh, and it's a three block walk from the path train, so it's quite close. And the walk is right along right along the water, um, uh, like you said, with a beautiful view of the city. Um, our website is uh, HalifaxHoboken.com. 
Um, and uh, like we're open breakfast, lunch, and dinner Monday through Friday, and then breakfast, brunch, and dinner on Saturdays and Sundays. We do a great brunch uh, Saturdays and Sundays as well. And the California project is located where? It's in uh, Jenner. It's, well, it's north of Jenner, California. It's right on right on Highway, Highway One, right on the coast. Um, and it's called Tim Timber Cove Resort. Um, the uh, we just got named actually as of uh, yesterday the number one uh, resort in Northern California by Condé Nast magazine. Awesome! Um, so that's uh, great, great, great for us. Yeah. Cool. And the website, if in case anyone uh, wants to get Tim, out there, TimberCoveResort.com. Awesome, Chef. Thanks so much for being here and uh, sharing a little bit about your background, and of course, telling us all about uh, Halifax and uh, all the great projects and uh, all the places that you've worked over the years. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Eli. Everyone, thanks for listening. And you can join us every Tuesday for new episodes of The Line with chefs and restaurateurs telling about their career and their life story. Join us next week for a brand new episode. And if you want to find old episodes, you can find them at heritageradionetwork.org forward slash The Line, or you can download them anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>